It's something that's talked about a lot this time of year, online, in church offices, and in biblical commentaries too. The language we hear in the Gospel of John. This week, and particularly next week, we will hear a lot about the Jews. So forgive me for using a minute or two of sermon time to share my own personal reflections with you on a question that resurfaces annually. What are we to make of this language? If you've ever used Google Translate to communicate with someone in a different language, you know that sometimes it's great, and at other times, not so much. Vocabulary is important, but to map grammar, syntax, and idioms from one language directly to another simply does not work. Cultural context from both the original language and the language to which one is translating is gravely important. It's not all about literalism. It's about indigenizing the true meaning. So when John says the Jews, to whom is he referring? On benign days, he's simply referring to people who do not believe in Jesus. But on bad days, John is referring to people who value law over love, rubrics over respect, canons over compassion. He's referring to people who think they have this God thing all figured out and who despise detours from their self-declared pathways to heaven. For centuries, we have deferred digging deeper for a better translation, I think in fear of unearthing a mirror. We are petrified at the thought that those words on our bad days might just describe us too. So perhaps when we hear the Jews, we ought to think us. There are many interesting things one can preach on in today's gospel. Martha's stunning example of discipleship as she boldly announced Jesus to be the Messiah, putting her faith on the same level as Peter. Or one could preach on how Thomas, the man who would become famous for his doubt, seems oddly full of conviction in today's gospel as he exclaims, let us also go to Judea so that we may die with Jesus. Or one could even preach about the elephant in the room how a man came back from the dead. But what jumps out at me this morning is a dance between humanity and divinity, a tango of our own human limitations and the boundless possibilities of God. The scene starts out with dear friends of Jesus sending a message to him, come quickly, Lazarus is about to die. 
I wish I could say for reasons unknown, Jesus delays heading to Bethany for two whole days, but that's not what we hear. Instead, we hear a puzzling statement. This illness is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's a hard line to stomach. As we listen to the remainder of the story, the disappointment of Jesus' absence, the pain of Lazarus' death, the weeping and mourning of an entire community, we are confronted with a difficult question. Is this all so that the Son of God may be glorified? Or is there possibly another dynamic at play? Consider where this lesson occurs in the Gospel of John. This is one of the last lessons in Christ's ministry. Raising Lazarus from the dead will be the straw that breaks the camel's back for the religious authorities. A few verses after this reading, we hear in a meeting of the elders, it's time for Jesus to go. Knowing that his time with the disciples is coming to an end, Christ might just be modeling something for his disciples and perhaps even something for us too. What we see in this gospel reading is a situation we've all faced in life, needing to be in two places at the same time. Jesus seems to be hard at work when he's notified that Lazarus has fallen ill. And in the finitude of his humanity, Christ cannot be two places at once. So Jesus chooses to stay where he is and wraps up his work there. His decision comes at a cost, though, giving up the ability to hear Lazarus and restore him to health. Martha bemoans, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Painful words we have undoubtedly heard in our lives when we failed to be two places at once, that all too familiar pain of having let someone down. Jesus knows his time on earth is ending so what might he be modeling? That this will happen to us too. We will not always be there. We might be late. It's possible we will not make it on time. And we are not God. So Christ models this, that God can do anything through us. We are finite, but God is not. One of my favorite theologians, Callistos Ware, reminds us, without God's grace, we can do nothing, but without our voluntary, voluntary cooperation, God will do nothing. 
Our salvation results from the convergence of two factors unequal in value, yet both indispensable, divine initiative and human response. What God does is incomparably the more important, but one's participation is also required. So despite his delay from being unable to be two places at once, Christ shows up, Christ consoles, and Christ goes on to perform a perhaps more glorious wonder than healing, raising Lazarus from the dead. He does this by voluntarily cooperating with God's grace. Christ got there when he got there, and God did the rest. Never underestimate what God can do with the little steps with which we take. As I was discerning a call to be an Episcopal priest, someone whispered in my ear that I really ought to become an Episcopalian if I want to be an Episcopal priest. <laughs> I thought that was a reasonable ask, so... 12 years ago, on the fifth Sunday in Lent, I was received. I remember that vividly because it was a very special day for me. I remember my father driving into New York City for this special day. My mom was there in spirit too, but she was down in Florida visiting her father. And so there, my dad and I sat as the service began in all of its Anglican glory. The grand procession of the verger, the crucifer, torches, choir, chalice bearers, deacons, priests, and that day, the bishop too. My dad turned to me and said, you really pull out all the stops when the bishop's around, don't you? <laughs> I turned to him and said, nah, it's like this every Sunday. We heard the same readings we heard today. The bishop preached a lovely sermon, and then it came time for my reception. When it was my turn, I knelt down before the bishop as a Roman and stood up as an Anglican, checking off my first prerequisite for ordained life. It was a happy day, mostly, but a shadow lurked in the background. That year, the fifth Sunday in Lent also fell on the same day on which my father's dad had taken his own life 24 years earlier. After the service, we went out to lunch, and in the way two dudes can muster up any sort of sentiment, he slid me a card and said, I have something for you. <laughs> so I opened it up. Dear John, congratulations on this very special day. I have always associated this day with death. But today, I will forever associate it with new life as you begin your journey towards the priesthood. 
love that. That afternoon, the Lazarus story never seemed more real. I got to witness the Paschal mystery so visibly unfold in my dad's heart as death turned into life. Many of the people, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus just did, believed in him. That was me that day, too. A lesson in faith. Take a small step and never underestimate what God is able to do. God might even turn death into life.